Hey everyone, and welcome to AOP. Sorry about the break, but I am back today talking with my friend Ben Kuhn, who lives just down the street from me. Ben, welcome. Thanks. I am excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for you to be here too. I think you are the second person ever where we recorded an episode and the audio became, or we determined it was unusable, unfortunately. So welcome back for Try Two. And let this be a lesson to future podcast guests not to try such a fancy audio setup. Yes, I was crafting a tweet in my head, which is like, I'm begging people, like, please just plug a USB microphone into your computer or something. It's like all these audio interfaces I find to be uh, a little unreliable. I had a friend who had an even more fancy audio setup than me. And every time we had a call, he would spend the first two minutes debugging which part of it was going wrong this time. The next four hours of our calls or whatever would be glorious because he had such a great camera and such a great microphone, but it was a little bit funny. Yes. Of course, as you're talking, my AirPods are kind of freaking out, but I think we're okay. Oh, no. Are you sure it's the AirPods and not my audio? I I really hope so. (laughs) Uh, Fingers crossed. You sound... You sound great right now. Okay. All right. So let's 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 dive into it with with abandon and just assume that life is good. <laughs> All right. Onwards like, and upwards. You sound awesome. All right. So my first question is: How did you develop your writing habit? How did I develop my writing habit? Well, so it started in college when I didn't have much else to do, and I had some friends who had started keeping blogs. One of them, some of your listeners may have run into, Jeff Kaufman, also lives down the street from you. I think his most famous blog post is about how he discovered a mercury spill in his house. If you have show notes, maybe you should put that one in the show notes. Anyway, mostly he just blogs about whatever he was thinking about at the time or some things he had been talking to friends about or something. There wasn't really like a topic or uh, a set of ideas. It was just him writing down random thoughts that he had had. But I really enjoyed reading them. And so I thought, what if I tried doing this? So Jeff wrote a lot because he just likes doing it. I tried to give myself a goal of writing once a week and uh, later for a shorter period, actually even once a day. I didn't publish all the things that I wrote when I was writing once a day. I would take whatever I wrote and I would like post it to Facebook and my friends would sometimes comment on it. And that was really motivating. And it seemed like people, people liked them. That was step one. I think step two... Shortly after I graduated, like some of my blog posts got some traction on Hacker News. And I was like, whoa, other people that I aren't just the people I know like reading the things that I wrote. That was also a lot of motivation to keep going. So some some people say you need to write for yourself. Don't write what other people want to want to read. I think maybe that's true if you're a poet, but I'm not that kind of writer. I basically only write things that I think other people will want to read. I mean, I don't optimize for that. I don't just write like listicles or whatever, but I'm very motivated by knowing that the things that I've written have been helpful to people. And so I actually found the feedback from my friends and from Hacker News, like really motivating to keep going. Totally. That makes sense. Yeah. And I I actually recommend people check out your your blog and your writing because it's it's excellent. Um, Thank you. I was mentioning... Yeah, I was mentioning to um, one of our employees that you might come into the office today. And she was like, oh, I love his article about reducing audio latency or like yeah, getting a wired setup to improve uh, reliability in calls. Ah, great. So that your, sounds your like uh, on brand for a Tupel employee to be extremely <laughs> excited about that blog post. 
Yes, exactly. Maybe the reason my audio is desynced is because you're using AirPods, which add like 200 milliseconds of audio latency to your chain. Yes, it's true. These are the second generation pros. So maybe they've reduced the latency with their, their fancy new chips. I don't know. Seems okay now. Maybe. Okay. It's all, it's all going well. But yes, that's my hatred for audio interfaces comes from working on Tuple as an app and people in all their weird audio setups. Oh, Oh man, what is the what is the weirdest audio interface problem you have encountered? Uh, I'm not sure. It probably is things like what the sampling rates are being unexpected or things that you think are stereo or mono or vice versa. I'm sort of far from these problems directly. I haven't actually had to fix any of them myself. Okay. But I just see I see the support you tickets see come somebody in. Somebody files a ticket and then it's like, oh wait, they had some bizarre audio interface. Yeah, exactly. How does the sampling rate make tuple confused i'm not sure okay. i think yeah i don't know all right I'll, I'll i'll have to ask one of your coworkers. yeah ask ask dorothy she'll she could <laughs> okay. probably tell you i i am increasingly the far from the technical details ceo so mm. i see the i can see your hair in. getting pointier as we speak yes exactly i'm i'm doing burn down charts and quarterly goals and things of that nature more than sampling rates uh, would you would you rather be doing sampling rates? Uh, not really. I sound like I'm whining about it, I guess. But I actually think the the figuring out how to build a company and like run a team thing is like very interesting and intellectually stimulating, and just like very high leverage. I think I will always love programming. I I haven't done it and done much of it in like probably five years now, which is is weird. So I could see myself eventually wanting to get back to it, but. But I'm, I'm still very like intellectually engaged with this particular new set of skills. And it scales, you know? Yeah, def- definitely. I'll say, sorry, I, I realize I, I started interviewing you. No, this yeah. is great, actually. Great. Um, you should think of yourself as, as co-host a little bit today, if you like. All right. Co-host it is. The usual format of this is uh, me and a co-host talking about our, our weeks. And so if you want to ask me questions, that's fine, too. Okay, great. Yeah, nice. So... I think an interesting thing about this, there's a bunch of interesting things about you, which is why you're here. If I thought you didn't have interesting things, I probably would not have uh, agreed to this. One really interesting thing is your approach to doing good in the world and your desire to do so. And it seems like a thing that you have thought a lot about and has changed over time. Do you want to maybe describe kind of what your, what your stance is on this these days? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So I broadly, I would say I'm like sympathetic to the ideas of the effective altruism community, which is like a group of people that try to answer the question of how can I do the most good in the world? The main thing that I really appreciate about the effective altruism community that I think is different from a lot of people who try to figure out how to do good in the world is the degree to which they pay attention to the degree to which they try not to suffer from what's called scope neglect. If you're comparing two ways of doing good in the world, it's common to not really think about like, oh, what are the number of people affected by like each of these? Or like, oh, what is the magnitude of the improvement that each each of these is causing? Um, so maybe an example of this is like, there are many nonprofits that try to help blind people. Some of them 
try to help blind people by, you know, raising guide dogs for those people. Others of them try to help blind people by performing surgeries for types of blindness that can be cured by surgery. It turns out that the, the cost of one guide dog is about 40,000 US dollars, or was last time I checked. And the cost of one blindness curing surgery is about $40. Probably when I said the first sentence, you're like, great, it's like two ways of curing blindness. Um, those seem good. And well, it turns out that like one of them seems approximately a thousand times better than, than the other. I think most ways of doing good are not as amenable to literal exact quantification as the thing that I just described. For most things, the effects are not as clear as like, oh, this, this one person is no longer blind. And like we know because we literally removed the thing from their eye that was causing them to be blind. Also, like there's a lot more uncertainty about like the, the numbers. I don't know, something where you're, for example, like advocating for better welfare standards for farmed animals, right? It's like, well, did your advocacy actually cause a change in welfare standards? Well, what did the change in standards actually cause corporations to do differently? And then like, oh, does that have second order effect? Like there are all of these like caveats, right? And so I want to disclaim the interpretation that is just like, you should quantify everything and do math to everything. I don't endorse just making a spreadsheet and then doing whatever the spreadsheet tells you. But I think that you should have the spreadsheet so that you know if something turns out to be a thousand times better than another thing, which is I, I would say is it's surprisingly common for this to happen and for people not to notice. Just like at Wave, I often have the experience of like, somebody tells me a number. I'm like, that number sounds suspicious. Are you sure it's right? And then they come back and they were like, sorry, I was off by an order of magnitude because of some mistake. And so it's really easy if you don't have a good intuition for for the sizes of different things. It's really easy to just make very large numerical errors that can that can cause you to do the wrong thing. And so I think thinking basically trying to be really rigorous about like, is this actually the best thing is something that I believe pretty strongly in. I feel like that's this is a partial answer to your question. Maybe there are other <laughs> All right. So, I mean, I know the answer to this. I'm just queuing you up to tell me. But like I, you have like a page on your site, for example, where you talk about how you earn money to give to causes. But that's like not even your primary focus for doing good in the world. Do you want to maybe talk about that shift? Yeah. So when I graduated school, I was like, okay, I'm a programmer. Surely there's like some way that I could use my programming skills to improve the world. Like I could write programs that make people's lives better. And I sort of looked around at the options and I was like, well, actually, most of these are helping people in the US who are like, there are definitely people in the US who are not super well off, but even the people who are not super well off are many of them by global standards, quite well off. And they're sort of like a small ish group in the US. And so a lot of the things that people would give examples of as like ways of doing good as a programmer. They didn't really seem like they cleared that bar of like, do they have a big effect on like a large number of people? Another thing that programmers are good at uh, is earning money. And if you have money, you can turn it into donations to charities that because they like help people who are far away in developing countries where like standards of living are lower, it's the amount of life improvement that you can buy, quote unquote, with a certain amount of donation is much larger. And so like at the time that I was making this decision, I think 
the standard that I was using was the the top rated charity on givewell.org, um, which if anyone finds this conversation interesting, they should check out. The top rated charity was the Against Malaria Foundation. And I think GiveWell's estimate was that statistically speaking, if you gave them a $3,000 donation, they would distribute enough insecticide treated bed nets to prevent enough mosquito bites that one child would not die of malaria who otherwise would have died of malaria. So it's like, okay, you plug in $3,000 and like, somebody gets to not have their child die. And like, that's pretty freaking awesome. If you're a programmer earning a decent salary, you can buy an awful lot of bed nets and save an awful lot of kids' lives every year with your salary. I decided that my plan was going to be to, quote, earn to give, which means trying to make as much money as I could so that I could donate most of it to charities. I started doing it and I started donating a uh, pretty decent fraction of my income. Shortly after that, I finally found a thing which I thought was using programming in a way that had like a pretty big effect on a large number of people who were not well off, which is the place where I currently work, which is Wave. I ran across it kind of randomly. I had previously met one of the founders at an effective altruism meetup and he wasn't working on it at the time. But uh, later I was video calling one of our mutual friends and he popped up in the background and said, Ben, I'm working on a money transfer app. Do you know any good engineers? He was also previously trying to earn to give. He was building social mobile apps and he was going to donate the proceeds from when they became a multi-billion dollar company if they did to, to charity. But he and his co-founder had decided that they instead wanted to just work on something that had directly had a big impact. Yeah, I think Wave is still in a somewhat unusual bucket of ways that you as a programmer can build something that directly has a large improvement to people's lives. And the improvement to people's lives in this case is like, if you don't have a bank account and you do everything in cash, this actually imposes a huge amount of friction on your life in various ways. Um, it's hard for you to save money. It's hard for you to send money to other people. If you're a business person, you can actually spend a lot of time just waiting for like cash to come to you on a bus and stuff like that. Compared to, for example, like a surgery that makes you not blind for any individual person, it's like a smaller effect, but it's something that you can bring to everybody in Senegal, for example, which is the, the country where we have the most users where now almost everybody in Senegal is a wave user. Collectively, we're saving the people in the countries we work, something like a few billion dollars a year, which really translates to a really meaningful improvement in like people's ability to collectively like put food on the table for their kids, pay school fees, stuff like that. Overall, I think earning to give is like still really awesome, but for an increasing number of people, we now understand enough about like how different things you different things you could work on work that there are also options for using your career to directly do a lot of good in the world. I think that you wrote that I thought was interesting. As you said, one thing that surprised me when I switched plans from earn lots of money and donate to build important things is how much more productive I became. I thought if I was earning the money by doing intellectually interesting work, I'd stay motivated. It turns out that wasn't true. That's a great realization to come to. Yeah, this was this was something that like surprised me a lot about that transition. So I was previously, the previous work that I was doing, I was building machine learning models to figure out which people who borrowed money were 
more or less likely to default on their loans. And this is like a fairly interesting problem intellectually. Like there's a lot of different components about like getting the right data, figuring out how to like build the right models, understanding like how the, the loans work, stuff like that. So, you know, I got to spend half of my day like reading statistics papers and stuff. Like, you know, I, I majored in math. I like solving fun statistics problems and stuff like that. But I noticed that I was like getting kind of demotivated. And when I started working for Wave instead, I felt so much more energized just because I there was like a much more tangible connection between me doing some work and like some people's lives getting improved rather than it going through this abstract thing of like, well, I do some more work and then I get some more money and then I donate some more bed nets and then somebody doesn't get bitten by a mosquito and then they don't die of malaria. Having that direct connection to the thing that we were working on was just like, it was a lot, made my day-to-day work a lot more satisfying, even when the work that I was doing ended up being, you know, kind of mind-numbingly boring. Like I was responsible for doing our accounting one year, which was like, I don't know. Um, uh, actually also turned out to be surprisingly interesting, but not so interesting that I wanted to keep doing it, let's say. <laughs> But knowing that it was like the most important thing for Wave to be working on at the time meant that like I was still happy to do it and like was I was going to say did a good job. I think compared to any real accountant, I did not do a good job or compared to the head of finance that we hired the next year or something. But um, compared to a programmer who was not motivated because they were like, why am I working on this bullshit with spreadsheets instead of writing code? I think I did a pretty good job. There's probably some developers in the audience of this podcast listening now that are, you know, in cushy careers, have nice salaries, are maybe in, maybe in the later stages of their careers and are thinking about like their impact. It possibly could be a question that I imagine on people's minds. What's a good on-ramp to figuring out something that's going to resonate with people or just like sort of good first steps or reading materials for this? I think the best reading material would be a website called 80,000 hours. That's 80,000, the number, and then hours.org. And hopefully you can put a link in, in your show. Do you have show notes? I keep saying things about show notes. And I'm like, if you don't have show notes, that's going to be really embarrassing. I'm not sure if there will be show notes. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> but but I, people can, you know, we, we got it. All right, we Google got it. The thing. 80,000, the number, 80000hours.org. Don't make an order of magnitude error on this one. This is a number where it's important to get the correct order of magnitude. Anyway, they are a nonprofit that is dedicated to figuring out how can people use their careers to do the most good. And they do a bunch of thinking about this, both in terms of what cause areas seem plausibly really important and what sorts of ways are there to work on those cause areas for people with different aptitudes and I generally think they have a good overview of the space of interesting options that exists today. There are also probably things for any particular person. I think there's also interesting paths that are like not on 80,000 hours um, because, of course, they like can't cover everything. And there are a lot of things you could do that are like too weird or niche or one off to be worth evangelizing to like a multi-thousand person audience or something or maybe they're just not aware of because it's hard to be aware of everything it's a good place to start and it's a good place to like i think they have a really good framework for how to think about comparing different options 
And learning that framework will be a helpful thing that you can apply to your own case, even if you're like, well, the particular, I disagree with their assessment of particular cause areas or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think there's even, I think they will even provide a service where you can fill out a form and talk about yourself and they will schedule a call with you to kind of help do some one-on-one advising. Yes, they do one-on-one career coaching as well. Yeah, so probably a great option to investigate. Yeah. You, You have on your blog... I saw a quote from you, which says, if you're looking for easy but important problems to solve, get in touch. Ah. Do you have an easy but important uh, doc somewhere of interesting Oh, that, 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 was, that was code for maybe you should come work with me. Um, <laughs> I see. Got it. Okay. Yes. I, I think you, you said I, your blog is, is super good recruiting for, for Wave. It is. Yeah. Or at least our recruiting team keeps asking me to write more blog posts. I've underappreciated writing as recruiting, I think, so far. Like we're, we're about to ramp up recruiting a bit at Tuple and one of the things I'm, I'm encouraging us to do is like write more, especially like engineering kind of blog posts. Oh, yeah. It is, I think, maybe the best, one of the best ways of proving to people that they will have smart and interesting coworkers. That's like something that people are often kind of worried about and it's like hard to assess for a new job because obviously you can ask people, oh, how are your coworkers? And every single person you talk to will be like, my coworkers are amazing. They're so smart and interesting. Even if clearly not everyone can have like top 1% smart and interesting coworkers, but everyone thinks that they do, right? And so a blog is a really good, like credible signal of smartness and interestingness. Do you have any, do you have any blog post ideas that you're excited about? One of our engineers is working on one now, which I'm excited to see happening. Do I have any blog posts ideas I'm excited about? For recruiting technical people, I'm, again, so far from the, those problems that not really. I have learned a lot about enterprise sales. And so I, I'm actually giving a talk next week at a conference for founders about the things I've learned as kind of like moving from reluctant amateur to fairly competent amateur. Well, I guess. That, that could be a blog post. If I were an engineer working at an early stage startup that lived or died by enterprise sales, I would be extremely interested to know whether they seemed like they were good at enterprise sales. I've found that even even though my blog is read, I think, by at least majority software engineers, um, they mostly prefer not to read about software engineering, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. Maybe it's just that I'm less good at writing about software engineering than other things. But all of my posts about software engineering get like very little traction. Um, compared to my posts about, for example, like how to have a nice video call set up or whether it makes more sense to try and chase intellectually interesting problems or like easy but important ones or something like that. If I I had a genre that I thought people really liked, I would characterize it as like life advice, which is kind of weird to say because I think most life advice blog posts are really bad. People seem to consistently find mine pretty useful. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good point. I guess even just kind of like programmer adjacent topics is probably still useful yes. for demonstrating, you know, competence and an interesting brain. I think like I think the fact that I am a programmer is definitely useful. Like it, like it means that I like or it's definitely related to the fact that most of my audience is programmers. It means that we like think in similar ways. I come to the for example life advice topics with like a certain like rigor and a certain set of mental models that maybe like if you're instead reading life advice from like a cartoonist or something like they would be less rigorous and or have a different set of mental models and i think that is part of what makes people like the posts but uh people don't really want to read my takes on i don't know why like gradual typing is better than required static typing or something like that even though i thought that was like a super interesting observation that i had oh well um yeah 
Yeah. So it's funny how hard it is predict to predict uh, how well things will do. Like I, f- I feel like it's just kind of universal. It's like this little throwaway post did super well. This high effort one that I was convinced was a banger just didn't do it. Are you secretly referencing another one of my blog posts, Ben? Searching for <laughs> outliers. I'm not, but but keep going. Oh, keep oh okay. I, I, I could have sworn you were because this is like one of the central points of the post. It uses blogging as an example, in fact, of, an, of a type of activity that you can do where you... A, it is hard to predict which things will succeed ex ante, but also B, the difference between something that really succeeds and something that doesn't is enormous. It's like many orders of magnitude. Like if I have a post that really succeeds, maybe like it'll make it to the top of Hacker News and like 100,000 people will read it. And if I have a post that sucks, maybe like 1,000 people will read it, right? So it's like a factor of 100 difference. This type of distribution is called a like heavy tailed distribution. There's like a lot of probability mass in like the, the long tail of like very outlier E outcomes. People often have like bad intuitions about what to do in this kind of scenario. And that actually comes up like really a lot. So other heavy tailed distributions are like the distribution of startup outcomes, the distribution of outcomes of people that you might hire of like romantic partners, all that kind of stuff. Like in each of these cases, the difference between like the best possible like outcome and the sort of median outcome is like an order of magnitude or more. The biggest thing that I learned about doing this type of thing is that like the, by far the most effective way to improve your outcomes is just to do more of the thing. If you can't predict which blog posts are going to succeed and you want to find the blog posts that like are, are, are going to succeed, well, you could try to make your blog posts better, but like that takes a lot of time and you don't really know what better is. Um, and so like, however, you could just write another blog post and that gives you another sample from the distribution and it sort of linearly increases the chance that one of the blog posts that you write will be this like crazy outlier. And this is why I think to go back to an earlier part of our conversation, my habit of like writing every week was really important. It's like much more about quantity than about quality, at least until you build up a really good mental model of what quality means for your audience which like I kind of have that mental model now. And that's why I now I can write some more like three posts a year than like 50 posts a year. But those three posts like have a quite good chance of, for example, like making the top of Hacker News compared to one of my posts from the 50 posts a year era. I have like a much better mental model of what quality is. Even so, I think I still can't predict very well which of the blog posts will be like true smash hits or not. I think people underapply this sort of general principle of like doing a lot of the work, like getting a lot of the samples. There's this great proverb from in Go, the game of Go, which is lose your first hundred games as quickly as possible, which I really love. I really enjoy teaching people Go. And so I play with a lot of beginners. And what I will see happen is like there will be a situation in the game and I will like watch this person kind of analyze and just try to go really deep and they're thinking and they're thinking and they're thinking and they finally make their move and it's terrible. And it's like an, like an immediate refutation that I just like make without even thinking because I've just cached the answer to this particular tactical situation through hundreds of exposures. I've started to think like if you're a beginner to the game of like go or say chess maybe, like play with the clock. Like thinking time is wasted on you right now or like it's, just, it's not productive when especially when compared to lots of like getting lots of reps in and like starting to like see pattern mashing it's good to just like make that mistake 10 times quickly because then you will see the mistake before you make it 
Whereas like spending 10 minutes every time that physician is there doesn't actually help you learn like to not make that mistake next time, I don't think. Huh. That's really interesting. So this suggests that maybe there should be a better way to learn Go than by just playing a bunch of games, right? Like, I mean, some moves in games are like interesting or something. Uh, but if you're if it's mostly about like pattern matching, is there in fact a faster way to train your your pa- intuition for Go patterns than by playing a bunch of games? I'm not sure I would say it's mostly about pattern matching. Okay. Like it's I don't think it's like a competition of two pattern matchers just determining like which of like who can remember this better. It's a little bit more like there are strategic considerations that I think take a long time to build. And then there are tactical considerations, which on a small scale, you can sort of develop a, a like a stable of them where you just kind of understand, like, I've just cached the results of this fight over here and I can sort of just see. So that's the part that's pattern matching. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And it's kind of less like you can just use the pattern to know what's going to go on. And it's more like you can trim the search tree faster. So it's like, oh, that won't work, that won't work, that won't work. Okay, let me explore these two lines over here and pick the better one. That makes where sense. Where it's not clear what's going to go on. How long have you been playing Go for? Uh, probably 15 years or so now. Yeah, on and off. Not, not like regularly. I had a roommate who was quite good. And so we used to play a lot. And that was when I, I, I actually learned the game and got good at it. Nice. Decent. Do you still play a lot now? Uh, I don't play a lot now. I play... I, I go through... Uh, phases where I find someone else who's interested in playing and I, I really enjoy teaching people so I'm, I, I will get sucked in for a while usually and I, I watch people play in on YouTube and stuff sometimes. Nice. Uh, I wonder if you know my friends who are avid Go players and like lived in a house that like was like kind of like a Go house. Anyway. No, uh, probably uh, not but that okay. sounds interesting. The, I was like how many serious Go players can there be in mass in the Cambridge yeah. area? Probably That's like very uh, Korean or Japanese of them. They, I, I don't think they were Korean or Japanese. Um, well the, like there are Go houses. Oh okay. Where like you, you kind of like if you're a very promising young Go player I think in like Korea you will go to this like a house like this at like six and just live there. Oh holy crap. And, like, Whoa yeah all right take, so that's take enough classes maybe this is the real advice it's not just like do a lot of the thing it's like live in a house where the only thing you do is the thing i mean yeah if you want to be really good like so there are professional go players and if you want to become professional this seems to be the the, the path but yeah i mean i think this this tri- this lesson probably generalizes if i wanted to be better at writing i could come live with you and we would just like write together every day or something uh yeah um well if if only i were doing more writing even for people who do not live with me, I have a standing offer for if my friends write blog posts, I am happy to review the draft and suggest edits and stuff. So, which of course goes for you. Yeah, that's interesting. Wave did go for a period where we were, we were when we were like just launching in Ethiopia and then Senegal, we all lived in the same house. I mean, that was mostly because like good houses are hard to find in like various places, but I do feel like it caused all us to do just a lot more startuping and have a lot more like sharing of skills with each other than if we had all been in like separate places. Absolutely. It's like, it's, it's like the most pairing of possible. All right. And this is the tuple product placement tuple, the next yes. best thing to living in a house with your coworkers. <laughs> yes. That's why I had to make it is because I can't live with everyone that I work with. So did you ever live with the tuple people? No, um, we did work out of the same bedroom at Joel's house. So <laughs> all right, like that's kind of like part time to- living. Kind of like living together. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the other day we had a 
we had some in-person uh, meetup at Joel's place recently and uh, his wife came home and I was like, oh, Carol, it's just like the old days. You come home and Tuple's here. <laughs> That's how it used to be. That was our signal to go. You know, all right, Joel's wife's here. Uh-oh. Time to uh, time just to vacate the premises. The office is now being turned back into a home. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. You've interviewed him like a lot of people. You have a lot of interview experience. Yes. On the One of the side. things I applied the do lots of things strategy to. Yeah. What are the key features of a good interview process? Great question. This depends a bit on what kind of role you're hiring for. So I guess I would I would differentiate this into roles where you can basically ask people to do the job and roles where you can't. For roles where you can ask people to do the job, you should ask people to do the job, he said tautologically. Uh, so for something like an individual contributor software engineering role, you can give them you can ask them to do some software design and some programming and stuff like that, and then review the results. That interview is good to the extent to which it requires them to do the same type of thing they would do on the job. So like for Wave, we have like a small one that you do on your own and then like a big one that you do partly on your own and partly pairing with other people. And the big one involves like we give you a code base um, and then you like write a part of the code base so that you're not just like most software development. It's not greenfield software development. You're not building something on your own from scratch. You're understanding and extending an existing code base. And so that's something that we thought was important and gives us a useful signal on like, is this person good at reading existing code and like adapting to the conventions of like the code base they're working with and, and stuff like that. So, right. So that's, that's one thing that like makes that interview good. I think the other thing is like that I really like about that interview is it's the problem of designing that part of the code base is somewhat conceptually tricky. But also you can design and implement the solution within the span of a four hour set of interviews. It's really hard to come up with good problems like that, but you really get a lot more signal than if you're asking them to do like something where there isn't as much important design work and they don't have as many opportunities to make conceptual mistakes in the design or the design is too big and you don't get to see them implement much of it because like actually being forced to implement your design like often exposes flaws that you wouldn't if you just like wrote a design document or something like that. I would say the actual task matters a lot. And like, there's a lot of leverage that you can get from selecting a better one. Do you just come up with one and then like reuse that among candidates? Yep. Yeah, as much as possible. So I actually think that's another important part of a good interview process. If you give everyone the same task, you can actually calibrate on how good it is. Whereas if you give people really different interviews from each other, you will often be in debriefs where you are like, how did this person do? And everybody's like, uh, I don't know, fine. That's like a really a big red flag about your process if that happens frequently. The signal should be strong. Yeah, one of my coworkers made the very astute point that like, so our applicant tracking system has buttons for like strong no, weak no, weak yes, and strong yes. If people basically ever push the weak no or weak yes buttons, it's like you should figure out how they could have gotten more of a signal. Those buttons are for mean that there is a problem and not like I am undecided. The other thing that I think is really important about a, a good interview process, and this goes for both any 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 type, is speed. So just like moving people through the funnel quickly. Momentum is really, really important. If you give people too long between rounds, they'll like get demotivated or like stop being excited about your thing or like get excited about something else. And so we try to give people really fast turnarounds between steps. We don't always succeed because like that's hard, but um, yeah. we try. So 
for the folks you can't directly observe doing the work this is where you do the sort of uh, tell me about a time where x yep questions come up yeah so that type of question is commonly known as a like uh behavioral interview because you're i guess asking them about how they've behaved behavioral interviews are like not as good as non-behavioral interviews as in there it's like harder to go from how somebody performs at a behavioral interview to how they will perform at the actual job that's in, in part also because they're easy to bs you can like for example lie about how you behaved in the past or something like that i do think there's a set of like sort of non-obvious things you can do with behavioral interviews to help you get a better signal Gosh, I, I have an internal guide for this at Wave that I, I think is, is quite good, and I should try to publish it as a blog post eventually. But let's see. So my top tips, one again, is like ask the same top-level questions of everybody. Um, just standard helps you calibrate. Two is, again, uh, I guess this is actually similar to the previous one, but like getting the questions right gives you a lot of value. Some questions will be much better than others. So it like pays to think pretty hard about what questions you're going to ask. Three, a specific way to think hard about questions that you're going to ask is to think hard about what does a good versus bad answer to this question look like? If you can't answer that, the question is not going to give you a good signal. And it's surprisingly often like somebody will, I'll, I'll, I'll read a planned behavioral interview loop and Somebody will be like, I'm going to ask this question. And I'm like, what does a good versus a bad answer look like? And you can't actually come up with like something that's a really big difference. Um, so knowing what you're looking for in the answer and what a good versus bad answer looks like can be really important. So an example of this is like one of my favorite behavioral interview questions for managers is um, to talk about a time when they had an underperforming direct report. Um, and I have a pretty concrete list of things that I look for. Let's see if I can remember all of them because it's not loaded into my brain right now because I haven't hired any managers in like a few months. One is basically the timeline. Like, did they become aware of the issue quickly after it started occurring? Then did they address it quickly once they became aware of it? And then did they achieve a resolution quickly once they started addressing it? So that's something where it's very easy. Like you can ask people the story and they're like, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And then you're like, okay, what was the timeline? And then they're like, uh, there was a three month gap in here that I decided not to tell you about. That's a really clear example of where knowing what you're looking for ahead of time helps you laser in on that during the interview. And that's a, something, it, it makes it much harder for them to like BS. I'm trying to think if I have other behavioral interview tips, but, uh, I feel like I feel like those are the main ones. Okay, nice. That's helpful. Uh, I'm gonna have to talk to you more about this. Yeah, I'm excited. This will be a good excuse for me to. Well, I can I can just share you my internal guide, but this will this is a good forcing function to like maybe post it somewhere publicly. Yeah, that would be that'd be great. Are you behaviorally interviewing some people? Are you hiring uh, for some yes. roles? Would you like to describe what roles you're hiring for on your podcast so that people might apply to them? Maybe you've already done that. I would like to do that, but not at this time. Okay. Uh, but that's that's a good suggestion. All right. Um, and secret I, I roles. If you it. want to work at Tuple, email Ben in case one of his secret roles is something that you're good at. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the, the way to optimally hire people is to don't is to be cagey about what you're actually looking for, and just hope you get an applicant that works for what you want. Well, um, uh, you know, a secrecy should make it like more desirable, right? It's like uh, it's like clickbait, absolutely. but for job ads instead of. Um, <laughs> 
you'll never believe these 10 roles Ben is hiring for. <laughs> Number seven will shock you. Yes, it, it will. But definitely more on this soon. Yeah. I mean, the, the podcast is for sure a platform where I'll be talking about this. So excellent. But, uh, All right. While, while you have the platform, do you have any non-secret roles or, or things you want to plug while you're here? Uh, we actually are not hiring very quickly right now for perhaps the first time in Waves history. We're being a bit more conservative with our runway uh, because fundraising is hard right now. Check back on wave.com. We have a careers page with our, our open roles, and I expect there will be more more over time as we as we ramp hiring back up. Cool. Yeah. And folks can probably tell from this conversation, but I'm a fan of yours. So uh, I think working with you would be a, a positive I'm experience. I'm a fan of yours too. Well, thank you. I'd recommend folks check that out if that sounds appealing. Or if you want to do impacty things that are not direct like that, 80,000hours.org. And if you can't figure out how many numbers are in 80,000, you probably are not going to be very effective anyway, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't know. You wouldn't believe the number of people who make off by, off by factor of 10 errors. I've seen it happen <laughs> to some, some very smart folks. Maybe not, yeah, well, eight. maybe not literally the number 80,000. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, I think that's it. Thanks for coming on, Ben. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. I hope your hiring round goes excellently and uh, excited to talk more about any interviewing or other stuff that that you want to chat about. Yeah, totally. I might actually have you back on when I am going to be public with all the, with the things I'm looking for and we can maybe get more specific. All right. How do you hire for this position? Sweet. All right. Excited for that. Yeah. All right. Talk soon. All right. Take care. See ya.